morning. Uh, so glad to have you all here with us this morning. If you are joining us um, from Pleasant View or worshiping with us in the chapel, really glad you guys are here with us this morning as well. Um, I want to talk to you about a little bit of family business before we jump into the message today. Um, first of all, you'll notice that I am not Pastor Tom. Uh, Tom and uh, several of the guys from staff are missing this morning, and you'll notice there's a few guys from the congregation missing as well. Um, That's because we sent about 10 men on a men's retreat this past weekend. And part of what they're doing is, yes, getting away um, so they can hear from God, but it's also um, an opportunity for them to pray about and to discern what God might want to do here um, and how men's ministry might take shape here at Alive. So I thought it'd be appropriate to let you all know about that so we can pray for them this morning. Um, Also, had a few questions after the first service um, about my belly. Um, Yes, Matthew and I are expecting um, in January. I think you So if I lay it out, um, that's what this is all about. Um, Also, I want to take a minute before we get started also to acknowledge... um, the events that happened in Charlottesville yesterday. Uh, Anytime we hear things like this, uh, our hearts are grieved, um, especially when we see evidences of of kind of hatred still permeating our society. And so we would love as a church to be a a place where um, healing can happen and a place where reconciliation happens. And so we'd love to pray together uh, for the people impacted by Charlottesville, but also for continued healing for our nation. And so would you join me in praying as we start out our service this morning? Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a gracious God, that you are a loving God, that you are so holy and so good. God, we thank you that you were present even when things feel chaotic and confusing. We pray that you would continue to bring healing to those who were impacted in Charlottesville, but also to those who are wrestling with with hatred um, in their own hearts. Jesus, we want to be a part of the solution, and so I ask that you'd help us as a body know what that looks like to be a people who um, are reconciling people, a people who bring your love and your kingdom to earth. God, we also thank you for our men. We think about Tom and the guys that are worshiping this morning in another location. Thank you for the way that you've already been working in their lives and speaking to them. I ask that you would continue to guide them to a place of discernment and that the impact of this weekend would have far-reaching implications for our body. We trust you, trust you to be a God who guides us. And so right now, Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you are present. You've already been moving. You've already been talking to us since before we even walked into this room. So we're trusting you to continue that conversation. Would you help um, each one of us just surrender our hearts to you just now and allow you to speak to us as only you will. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. We may have noticed um, that our branding for this series is all around the idea of won't you be my neighbor. And I found out something a little bit disturbing this week, that there are people in this room who don't know what won't you be my neighbor is referencing. And there are people in this room who have never actually seen Mr. Rogers. So I felt like it was my responsibility to at least give you a little bit of exposure to the show. So would you join me in watching just a clip of Mr. Rogers? Just like you, I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood 
Let's make the most of this beautiful day, beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine, would you be mine, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? How can you not love that? That will be in your heads the rest of the day, so you are welcome. Uh, loved Mr. Rogers, grew up watching Mr. Rogers. Some fun trivia that you may not know about Mr. Rogers. He actually wrote all of the songs that were part of his show. Um, pretty cool. His mom also made, handmade, all the sweaters that you see in the show. Cool fact. And contrary to some of the information you'll find out there, Mr. Rogers never served in the military. So if you hear that, that's a lie. Um, now, again, I grew up loving this show, and part of what I loved about this show was that Mr. Rogers really did create a place that I wanted to be a part of. He created a neighborhood where I would want to live because the people there, they took care of each other, right? They knew each other's names, and they had fun together. And so this was really, I, I, I would want to be his neighbor. I would want to live in that neighborhood. And maybe some of you have lived in neighborhoods like that. Not neighborhoods with puppets and trolleys, but neighborhoods where people took care of each other and where people looked out for each other. Now, I grew up in a neighborhood in western Pennsylvania, and I had some incredible neighbors. Uh, right next door to us, there was this family named Dick and Nancy. And Dick and Nancy were an older couple. They were already retired. They were empty nesters. And they just, like, went out of their way to take care of my sisters and I. They were the kind of neighbors that would come over and bring fresh vegetables from their garden. They would bring fresh baked pies and cookies. They would invite my sisters and I to go berry picking with them. They would let us come over to their house to play board games. And in the wintertime, whenever it snowed, we would get like several inches of snow on the sidewalks. And Dick had a snowblower. And so he would come out, and he wouldn't just snowblow the patch of sidewalk in front of his house. He would snowblow the entire sidewalk for the whole block. These guys were great neighbors. And we had several neighbors in our neighborhood that were like that, people that would let you share their tools, that would join in projects with you, that would look after each other's kids. And then there were the other neighbors. You know the ones I'm talking about. They're the ones that cussed at us when we crossed the property line. They were the ones that called the cops on us when we climbed in their trees. They were the ones that had the noisy dog or the family feuds or the sketchy acquaintances, the ones where we weren't allowed to go in their yard. And that's because all neighbors aren't created equal. We all know that all neighbors aren't created equal, and that's part of what we're getting into in this series is we're trying to define what makes a good neighbor. We're trying to define who are our neighbors and, and what is our neighborhood. And so last week, Pastor Tom took us through the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And he talked about how there's this, this guy in that story that's a religious lawyer and a lot of times, we can wrestle with the same kinds of things that the guy in that story wrestled with. See, the religious lawyer had these two tendencies where he would feel like when he related to God, I pay my own way and I've earned it. The religious lawyer would wrestle with this feeling that, you know what, I've earned my status with God. Or I pay my own way. Through my own good deeds, I make my relationship with God right. And last week, Pastor Tom let us know that, you know, sometimes this comes up in our own lives, but God has offered us a different way. He's offered us this way of grace. Well, this morning, I want to continue looking at that passage in Luke 10 and looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, but I want us to look at the second question that's in that story. 
See, the, the religious lawyer had gone to Jesus, and his first question for him was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, his follow-up question, once he gets that answer from Jesus, is, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? And that's what we're going to look at today, because most of us, we have an answer already to what it is that makes a good neighbor. We already know in our minds what makes a good neighbor, but I think the way that the text answers this question is going to surprise us and tell us a little bit more about what it is that actually makes someone a good neighbor. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 10. It's verses 25 through 37. And if you're looking for that, that's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. If you have a physical Bible on your phone, it's a little easier because you just type in Luke. We're starting the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But... A Samaritan, now anytime you see the word but, that should be like red flags all over the place. Something different is about to happen. There's about to be a contrast. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So I want us to kind of keep the story of the Good Samaritan in the back of our minds. And I want you all to imagine with me some of the people in your community that you respect. Who are the people that you look up to, the people that you take your cues from? If you work in the local school system, maybe it's another teacher that you watch and you see how this person relates to their students and how they just are incredible at connecting with them. Or maybe it's another teacher, the one who knows how to take a student at whatever level they're at and help them walk out of that classroom holding their head a little higher the next year. Maybe it's an administrator that you've seen walk in and bring a lot of change. If you're in the hospital system, maybe it's a doctor that you look up to because of their expertise but also because of their way with patients. Or maybe it's a nurse, someone who's worked there for a long, long time, and they just seem to handle whatever comes their way with, like, grace and knowledge. Maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's your manager. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a spiritual leader. Who are the people that we look up to, the people that we take our cues from? In this story, that would be the priest and the Levite. These two should have been the cultural role models because the priest, his whole job was to help the people connect to God, to go to God on behalf of the people. And then he would come back to the people and he would say, hey, these are the things that you need to do. If you want to get right with God, follow this, this, and this prescription. And that's how you can connect to God. And the Levite, he would have been like an assistant to the priest. This was someone who helped handle some of the other elements of worship Sometimes this person would lead the singing. This was someone who lived just a notch above the rest of the Jewish community. And so the expectation when we hear about a priest and a Levite would would be that they would be the examples. But when Jesus tells this story, that's not who they are. 
because we listen and we hear clearly their behavior is not one we want to model. They see a guy laying in the ditch and they pass by on the other side. So what Jesus said there would have been surprising. Now I want to take a minute and think now of the people that we would consider to be on the fringes of society. People who, if they walked in this room, we would feel a little bit uncomfortable. For some of that, us, that's someone who doesn't hold the right political views. Maybe they're too political or too conservative. For some of us, that, that's people with a different sexual preference. For some of us, that's people with a different racial or ethnic background. For some of us, it's just the people that don't have good hygiene. We all have some people that we would consider to be on the fringes, on the outside of the community, and if they came in, we would all feel a little bit of stress, a little bit of discomfort. In our story, that's the Samaritan. That's the Samaritan, and that's who Jesus pulls in. See, he surprises everybody when he pulls in this outsider into the center of the parable. The structure of the story actually would have set the people up to have a very different expectation. Normally, when you would hear about a priest and a Levite, the third party would be someone from the Jewish community. So it would be a priest and a Levite and the people of God. A priest, a Levite, and the children of God. This would be like the equivalent, a more spiritual equivalent of a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. We all know what's supposed to come next. But Jesus, he doesn't follow this pattern. He challenges it, and he changes it. This is, he pulls the Samaritan in where a person from the Jewish community should be. This would be like the lawyer, and the doctor, and the immigrant. This would be the pastor, the small group leader, and the chain smoker. Jesus pulls in this person from the outside, from the fringes, and pulls them into center stage. See, Samaritans, they were seen as foreigners. They were seen as half-breeds. They were outsiders, not the people of God. And Jesus doesn't just pull in this outsider to the center of the story, but he paints them in a positive light. He paints this guy in a light that ends up being the example now, now, pause, because this is really good news for some of us. Because some of us in the room have known what it feels like to be the outsider. To walk into a room and know, man, I, I'm not dressed right to be here. I don't have the right family name. Man, my, my skin's not the right color. I, I know I don't come from the right culture. I don't, come, I don't have the right socioeconomic status to rub shoulders with this crowd. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the right degree. And we've all known what it feels like to, to be on the fringes of society. And I love seeing how our Jesus handles someone who feels like they're on the fringes. Right? He looks at them and he says, you are not less than. You are not less than. I see you I see you and you are not less than. And that is who Jesus pulls in to the center of the story. That's a beautiful image for us to think about, not just how Jesus is doing that in his day, but what that means for our culture today, for those who feel like they're on the fringes, for those on the margins, that Jesus is looking at them and saying, I see you and I value you. In fact, I see the image of God in you. Now, Jesus has clearly set up this contrast in his story between the Samaritan and these two religious guys. 
on one hand, we have these two guys that would know all the right religious practices, and on the other hand, we have a guy who doesn't. On one hand, we have these people that, that should be respected by society, and on the other hand, we have the guy that's on the fringes. We have two guys on the inside and one on the outside, and all three of them have the same experience at the beginning, right? They all see the guy in the ditch. So what is the difference? What is it that makes the Samaritan different from the other guys? Well, the first thing that jumps out is behavior, right? Because we look at the priest and the Levite, and they walked by on the other side, but we look at the Samaritan, and we have this, like, whole list of acts of compassion that he has done for this man. He doesn't just walk by, he stops. He bandages the Samaritan's wounds. He picks up the guy, puts him on a donkey, takes him to an inn, gives of his own resources to make sure this man is cared for. He's got list after list of ways that he has taken care of this man. And for some of us, it would be tempting to camp here. Honestly, it would be tempting for me to stop and just talk about the need for us as a church and us as a people of God to be people of compassion who love people around us through compassionate acts of service. And all of that is awesome, and we need that. We are more healthy as a church when we have those kinds of things as a part of our body. But I think if we stop there, we'd be missing the heart of what Jesus is trying to say. See, it's not just the Samaritan's actions that set him apart from the other two guys in the story. Look at what Scripture tells us. It says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. All three people saw the guy in the ditch, but the Samaritan is the only one who is described as taking pity on him. And that word, take pity, is sometimes translated compassion. And when we look at the root of it, what it actually means is the bowels yearn for. We don't, we don't use that kind of phrase, but it's this deep compassion, something that comes from deep within. And you know what most often describes when we see that word compassion all throughout Scripture? Most often, that term is used to describe Jesus himself. Well, when Jesus tells about the Samaritan, that's the trait that he describes in the life of this man who was on the fringes. The response of this foreigner, this person who doesn't even keep the right religious practices, is more in line with the heart of Jesus than anyone else in the story. So what's the, what sets the Samaritan apart isn't his external behaviors. It's his internal response. What sets him apart from these other guys isn't just his external behaviors. It's something that starts in here. See, he's not just compassionate. He's filled with compassion. There's a difference there. His instinct is love. His gut reaction when he sees a need is love and care for this guy. Now, I I don't know about y'all, but I find that very encouraging and very freeing to know that these compassionate acts aren't just an external thing, but they start somewhere inside. That we don't just need a change of behaviors, that we need a change of the heart. This is so exciting to me because I've seen it fall short in my own life, right? The reason that we don't, can't just stir up compassion like on the external is obvious to all of us. We've all seen it. It's this, the reason that we don't um, all watch these puppy, sad puppy commercials with Sarah McLaughlin music and start giving away to the Humane Society. It's the same reason that we can be involved in a food drive one day 
and the next week forget that there are even hungry people in our community. It's the same reason that we can go on a mission trip and love all the people that we run into and see and be very moved by their needs and then come back and forget about the marginalized people in our own societies. Because compassion, true compassion, isn't something that can be stirred up simply by external behaviors. It's something that has to start inside. Man, that's freeing. Because I have tried to stir it up out here. I have tried to to, to force myself to be loving, to just make myself care more. And I fall short every time. Every time I fizzle out, I get tired. I stop caring. I I can't keep it up. And what Jesus is saying here is it's not just another change of behaviors. There's something happening at the heart level that makes this person different. And I think that that's a big deal for us today to understand that because there's, there's this movement for us to be moved towards um, social justice. And that's all an incredible and a good thing and it's something that we need in the local church. But I read an article not too long ago that says uh, social justice can become the new legalism for young people. Because it used to be that we felt like our to-do list to make us worthy before God was that we had to come into church. We had to sing the right song, dress the right way, speak the right language. And now we have this different list. To be a good person, to be good with God, we have to give to the poor. We need to go to rallies. We need to be a part of these different causes and make sure that justice is happening in our communities. And the truth is we need both of those things to be a healthy community But we're in danger of replacing one to-do list with another. And either way, we're going to find we still fall short till we learn that compassion isn't just something that can happen in the external. It's something that has to happen in the heart. Now, I I love that this is where Jesus is going with this. When he's talking with the religious leader, the the religious guy had asked him, Hey, who is my neighbor? And when he gets to the end of this story, Jesus turns that question back on him. He says, you know, you asked me who was my neighbor. What do you think? After hearing that story, who do you think the neighbor was? And the religious lawyer, I like to think maybe he paused a little bit because he knew that the words coming out of his own mouth were about to betray him. He says, it's the one who showed mercy. It's the one who showed mercy. I love that because this man who has spent his whole life trying to earn it and majoring on the externals has to admit that there's something different that happened internally that made the person a neighbor. He had to admit that there was a difference. What what, what makes someone a neighbor? They show mercy. That's awesome news because the religious lawyer, see, he would have known that there was supposed to be this Messiah coming. He would have heard that there was supposed to be something happening that would, like, open the way for everybody. He knew that at some point the whole world was supposed to be redeemed, but he didn't know what that would look like. He hadn't seen the cross yet. He hadn't seen the resurrection yet. He didn't know that Jesus was that way yet. And yet Jesus, when he speaks to him, he starts to hint at this different kingdom He starts telling this guy, listen, in my kingdom, things are going to be different. In my kingdom, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In my kingdom, compassion, it starts from within. 
Jesus, he knew that what the religious lawyer needed wasn't just another right answer. The religious lawyer needed freedom from his broken mindset. Jesus knew that this man needed freedom from his broken view of God because his broken view of God was impacting the way that he was able to love and care for people around him. And because he had this mixed-up view of a God that he had to earn his way to get to, he would forever be limited in his own ability to experience and share God's love with other people. And that's the thing that Jesus goes after. A.W. Tozer says that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we view and believe, what we believe about God impacts everything about us. If we see God as angry, we're going to be angry people. If we see God as judgmental, we're going to walk around being judgmental. If we see God as patient, we're going to be patient. If we recognize that God is gracious, we're going to be more gracious. And I've seen evidence of the broken view of God working in my own life, and I hate it. I've seen it in those moments when I'm sitting in the restaurant judging the mom whose kid is like crazy loud. I've seen my broken view of God when I'm driving down the highway and there's that person in the left lane, the one that can't seem to maintain a constant speed. I've seen it in my life when I've judged those that are too materialistic, too greedy, too selfish. I've judged those who just can't seem to get it together. And at every place where I am quick to judge, I demonstrate an area in my heart where I've been slow to accept God's grace. At every place where I am quick to judge shows where I have been slow to accept God's grace. What's really going on in the life of the religious lawyer and what's really going on in the lives of the priest and the Levite isn't just that they're not able to show mercy. What's going on in their lives is that they have never received mercy. They've never let themselves receive mercy. They've never said to God, listen, God, I am messed up. I can't do this on my own. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What makes these guys struggle is that they've never received mercy. And the truth is, we cannot give away what we have not received. We cannot give away what we have not received. I was thinking about this this week, and I I was thinking about those um, relays. I don't know if y'all have seen those little water bucket relays, where they start with this big bin of water on one end, and on the other end, there's this little, like, tube with a line on it that you've got to fill. And you line up all these little kids, and each of them has a little cup or a little bucket. Sometimes the buckets even, like, have holes in them. And they got to come in, and they got to get their water, dump it to the next person, who dumps it to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, until the end, the bucket at the end is filled up. I wonder if grace and mercy works a little bit like that. Like, some of us are running around with these empty buckets, wondering why it's impossible for us to show mercy. And, and some of us have actually walked and we've received it. We've had it all filled up and, and, and it's actually spilling out of our lives. Spilling out on the people around us as we walk around. And yeah, we run out, so we got, we got to keep coming back and getting a refill of God's mercy. 
And I wondered if that's actually what was happening in the life of the religious lawyer. He was running around with an empty bucket, discouraged that he wasn't able, he wasn't able to show mercy to somebody else but just because he hadn't ever gone and received that mercy and grace himself. And I love that uh, Jesus' story, it kind of flies in the mindset of running around with an empty bucket. <laughs> right? He says, you can never just like fill it on your own. I'm the source. There's another place outside of these religious rituals that's where you're going to get filled up. There's something different that can happen that's going to make you able to show the kind of mercy that we see in the life of this good Samaritan. Now, years later, years after Jesus told this story of the good Samaritan, years after the conversation with this religious lawyer, there would come along another guy, very much like the religious lawyer. And he would write these words. He would say, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works so that no one can boast. And these words, they were written by a man named Paul, who, like the religious lawyer, he spent a long time running around with an empty bucket. He spent many years of his life passionately worshiping a graceless God. Until one day, Paul is walking down the road, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this grace and mercy is just dumped all over him. I mean, it wasn't just like a little bit. Paul got grace and mercy poured all over him, so much so that he was to the point where he couldn't help but run around and get mercy and grace on everyone around him. In fact, Paul would spend the rest of his life making sure that message of grace and mercy was shared even at the, at the risk of his own life and at the risk of his own health. Because Paul knew about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He knew about the truth that Jesus was hinting at when he talked, to the good, when he talked about the, the Good Samaritan. See, the religious lawyer hadn't even experienced that yet. I think Jesus was giving him just this snapshot of the kingdom that was about to come. He was telling him, listen, this way that you have been a part of, there's more to life than these religious laws and these religious rituals. I'm going to come and change everything. <laughs> I'm about to change everything. I don't want you just to follow my laws. No, my kingdom, it starts from within. In my kingdom, we are all about mercy. In my kingdom, we operate out of grace. And, and that's the key to this whole passage, that we cannot give this mercy away if we've never received it. And we cannot be neighbors who offer mercy until we first receive that mercy. So what is it that makes a good neighbor? Yes, it's someone that shows mercy. But what makes a good neighbor is that they have received mercy. This is good news for every single one of us because all of us have been to that point where we recognize, man, it's just not working out here. I just can't make it happen out here. I need some grace. I need some mercy. And what I love when you read the story through the lens of mercy and grace is that you can see 
God's mercy working in the life of every single person who's introduced. Right? We see it in the life of the dude in the the ditch. He's just laying there. This guy can't even get up and get himself to any kind of help. And mercy is just dumped all over him. We see grace and mercy working in the lives of the Pharisees and the, the religious lawyer and anybody who would have been listening, who would have been stuck in that legalistic practices. God reaches out to them through his grace and mercy and says, listen, there's freedom for you. You don't have to keep living like this. Let me humble you and offer you a different way. There's grace and mercy for the Samaritan, for those who are marginalized, who feel like they're on the fringes, who Jesus calls into the center and says, yes, you know what? My image of God is on you too. And by the way, I have mercy and grace to pour out unto you that you can pour into others. See, we don't really know how the Samaritan um, ended up with a cup full of mercy, but we know that somehow he had it and was able to give it away. And it's such a beautiful picture Jesus is teaching us that his grace and mercy is available for each one of us, no matter where we're at. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, my neighbors, Dick and Nancy, and trying to figure out what we did as a family to kind of reciprocate their love. And I am not sure that we did a whole lot, because to be honest, we were loud and kind of crazy neighbors, I remember at one point, Nancy had to call our house because my sisters and I were having such a lively discussion while my parents were away. Our cat hunted at their bird feeder. They had a lilac bush, and it was kind of close to our burn barrel, and I'm pretty sure we burned that lilac bush up. I don't know what we did to deserve the treatment that they gave us. Because honestly, we were young, and we were crazy and busy, and my family was at a place where we probably had more needs than we had things to give. And they loved us, and they poured grace and mercy on us. Wouldn't it be cool if Alive had a reputation for neighboring like that? Wouldn't it be cool if whenever we moved into neighborhoods, and people saw that little Alive sticker on the bumper of your car, they said, I'm glad they're here. We're so glad that they showed up. Those are people who know how to love the people around them. Those are people of mercy. So today, I just wonder if we could take that challenge. If we could take the challenge, first of all, of being a people who recognize and acknowledge, man, we're not going to just get it right out here. We all need God's grace, mercy, and let him pour that into us. But then also, what if we could be a people who recognize when we have a full cup of mercy and we willingly walked around pouring that out on the people around us? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. I thank you for your scripture and for the beautiful way that you speak to us through your words. You say that your word doesn't return void, that it always accomplishes what you desire. And so we pray that this morning, that whatever it is that you want this word to do, that it would it take root and change us to be more like you. Pray for those of us in the room who wrestle with legalism, who wrestle with 
always trying to earn it and always trying to deserve it. God, would you free us from ourselves? Help us acknowledge that we're sinners and we need your mercy. God, for those in the room who felt on the fringes, would you speak very specifically to them this morning? Let them know that they have your image stamped all over them. Let them know that this same mercy is available for them. And Jesus, I pray for us as a body. We recognize that you're trying to do something in our community and that we can be a part of it if we're receptive, if we're obedient. And so I ask that you would give us the grace to do that, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and help us to be a people who don't just get filled up with your mercy, but run around spilling it on everybody around us. God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. We love you and we trust you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.